Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. If you've been enjoying episodes of the Mental Models podcast, you'd likely enjoy reading Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. George and I co-authored this book, Merging Our Knowledge, to provide you with an authoritative guide where our money-related biases come from and also what we can do about them. Material from Understanding Behavioral Bias is now included within the legendary Harvard Case Studies content library. Harvard Case Studies is widely used across the worlds of finance and business, and it's recognized as being one of the top repositories of leading-edge financial content. Content. The book is available in both print and Kindle versions on Amazon. So buy it, read it, and improve your process. Welcome back to the Mental Models Podcast. Uh, today we're going to engage in one of these uh, discussions about books that we've enjoyed and some of the lessons that uh, we took from it. Yes, today we've got uh, an interesting one. So this is Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave, from 2017. And Behave has a subline of the biology of humans at our best and worst. And uh, I will say in advance, Robert Sapolsky is one of the most interesting people working in neuroscience. He uh, was a primatologist originally and spent a lot of time investigating how baboon colonies work in um, East Africa and gained a lot of insight into stress and uh, the immune system and stress neurobiology out of that, and then spent the later part of his career getting heavily into genetic factors and predispositions and a lot of the complexity that goes on in, in behavior. So he has a very diverse background, and uh, as the title suggests, it's all about our behavior, and the book is absolutely a deep dive into behavior. He starts off with describing behaviors of humans initially, and then uh, right uh, in sequence, he goes to the next chapter as one second before we behave, what would have happened within our nervous system. And it's a great uh, introduction to a lot of neural systems, notably the limbic system, the amygdala, and our emotional reactivity and how it interacts with our cortex. Uh, it talks about the famous case of Phineas Gage, the uh, railway worker who uh, famously had a tamping iron uh, blown through his frontal lobe and it affected his behavior in a way that made him impulsive and emotional and uh, talks all about the important interactions among the emotional brain and our large expanded cortex. So sort of a moment-by-moment -moment decision making. The next chapter is seconds to minutes before behavior noting that the context just gets uh, more widely and richly uh, articulated, that we don't make decisions in a vacuum, we don't make them impulsively, they have a lot of precursors, and uh, that extends hours to days before we act as well, and then even into months or days before we act. So I think this is a really nice example of um, how the brain functions, the fact that we're always uh, sort of toggling between a fast, automatic, emotionally driven way of behaving and a calm, collected, rational sort of um, way of acting and that, that these are uh, both within our repertoires and uh, we can sort of modify our context to make better decisions a lot of the time, um, but it's not 100% under our control. Yes, uh, we talked about a bit of this in the book uh, that uh, you and I wrote. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, behavioral bias uh, is is rife within our lives. And our book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, does cover a lot of that interaction as well between sort of emotional quick decisions and more deliberative, uh, long-term sort of frontal lobe-driven decisions. Sapolsky then takes the latter part of the book, and it is a very long book. It took, I, I, I have a background, you know, of, <laughs> of doing a career in neuroscience and behavior, and it still took me quite a long time to read through this. But I did find it very engaging the whole way through. And Sapolsky does not shy away from any topic. He, he covers a lot of really controversial topics in, involving development. So behavior from uh, back in the womb is one of the chapters and all about our developmental systems. I think this is particularly valuable because um, what's missing from a lot of the academic discussion of our behavior and our cultures it's always from this perspective that it's all arbitrary and that it's all a social construct. I think Sapolsky points out it's not all a social construct and it's not arbitrary. We have some biological underpinnings to a lot of our behaviors and you see them in other primates. And having been a keen observer of baboon behavior, there are some remarkable parallels between the baboon nervous system and brain and the human nervous system and brain and the hierarchical social interactions. And um, one of the things he points out, which I think was a really potent message, is how devastating poverty is. And it's devastating to our biology. So when you have a child who's growing up in poverty and is abused, for example, it turns out their immune system and their, their stress systems change. They become more reactive, and that becomes a lifetime burden. So in behavioral research, we often talk about socioeconomic status, or SES, and that's a strong predictor of outcomes in life. If you're high SES, you're probably going to have high education. You're probably going to have lower incidence of diseases, of violent crimes, of a whole variety of things. If you're unfortunately low SES, meaning you probably had a, uh, a sort of less enriched uh, infancy and childhood, there can be burdens that get carried your whole life and it predisposes you to behaviors that um, are going to be sometimes destructive to you. And so what Sapolsky points out is, is poverty is unique to humans. You know, we've invented it in a sense in that we have these hierarchies that keep people in a cycle of poverty for generations. And it is immensely devastating. And we've seen it around the world. Um, other primates have bad outcomes, but the playing field is more level. And I think this relates to what people are worried about with wealth inequality now. We have kind of this systemic situation where some people are low SES and they have no way out of it. I wonder if it's, is it a relative issue? I mean, if you think about poverty and the issues that are created around poverty, uh, lack of sufficient resource stress associated with how to be able to meet uh, basic human needs things of that nature. My suspicion is there's a big distinction between Calcutta poverty and poverty in the United States. Absolutely. Sapolsky doesn't shy away from the fact that the context is, uh, is critical and the relative situation around you is, is sort of a guidepost. It could be the only guidepost for, for how you see yourself. Hierarchies turn out to be really important in mammal biology overall and group behavior, and you want to be higher in the hierarchy. It doesn't just necessarily 
equate to monetary success for humans. Also, status is important. And if we're low status, we tend to have um, more stress and worse outcomes. We're really devastated by people being way above us in a hierarchy, and especially if we have no autonomy to, to move up. You know, that's where societies get into real trouble, where um, there's a suppressed group and they're, they're constantly seeing other people be successful. I mean, it sounds a lot like what we face in westernized society. There's always the presentation of the, the most wealthy people leading the most exciting lives. And uh, the, that comparison is very uh, devastating to our self-esteem. I'm just curious, isn't it human nature that we have this hierarchy? There's always going to be people that are recognized as being, you know, the alpha or whatever. And then further on down, and like as with other primates, uh, there are other members of the troop that have a lower rank. And they, too, suffer more stress. They, you know, they tend to have worse outcomes. Uh, in, in that case, among primates, less access to food, less access to mates. Uh, I wonder if this is something in our nature or if there could be things that could mitigate poverty, for instance, which is more of a, it sounds like what you're saying is more of an issue of status as opposed to an issue necessarily of just material access. Right. Those are some important uh, things to think about. One of the, the sections of the book I thought was quite interesting and Sapolsky has numerous, numerous citations. I mean, it, it's um, just chock full of really good representation of the science. Uh, he does it justice throughout. One of the fascinating hierarchy discussions was about, about human happiness and executives. And he noted three, uh, there was a study that found three different characteristics that were important. One is the number of people ranking lower than you is a determinant of your happiness. <laughs> so you want to be able to see that you have status. Uh, the second is autonomy. So this ability to change your circumstances is really critical. And we've talked about locus of control. You know, having an internal belief that you can impact the world is extremely psychologically healthy. If, however, you think that the world is just, uh, you're in a little ship getting battered about by waves and you don't control anything, that's terrible for your stress and your immune system and everything else. So autonomy is really important uh, with the ability to hire and fire people, right? So to be able to modify the people around you is important. And then the third feature of, uh, of executive life is the number of direct uh, supervised employees. <laughs> and this is one you don't want a high number on. It turns out the more people you supervise directly, you know, direct reports equates to higher stress. And anybody who's managed a team knows that there's a, there's a certain point at which um, it just becomes more and more stressful to try to manage more and more people and deal with their sense of autonomy and the hierarchy, and it all become very unwieldy. So um, the recipe for happiness from that study was, you know, you want more people ranking lower than you, and you want to have high degree of freedom, but you don't want to actually have to micromanage the people below you. So that seems to be the the recipe for at least executive success in terms of having lower stress. It's kind of funny uh, when you talk about this, I think about SaberPoint and how... Uh, we've organized our team and how it's managed. We all sit on one desk. There is no uh, recognized uh, hierarchy. We actually, I actually encourage everyone to challenge me directly uh, 
on any particular issue so that we can try to find the uh, best descriptive narrative for an investment strategy. And uh, it is amusing. We, there's a lot of autonomy associated with the team. Each of the individuals that are on the team, you know, they uh, have whatever it is that they're working on, but I'm not sitting over anyone's shoulder uh, trying to direct them. Uh, it's just fascinating to hear uh, these insights uh, that are in Behave that uh, when I think about our business. And when you think about big companies, it's it's the reason you have a whole thriving field of, of business consultants, right? These people that come in to help you sort out the problems of your hierarchy. When you get a really large company that has, um, especially with, with sort of leaders at the top, um, those leaders often don't want to micromanage people, but they want all the glory, you know? So there's a lot of tension there. There's a lot of complexity within hierarchies. And we, we've created as humans unnaturally huge hierarchies to the point where they're not easily, you know, they're, they're just not manageable the way, you know, tribal life would have been on some savanna, you know, centuries ago. And so, um, we run up against a lot of conflict. Another fascinating section, which uh, gets into sort of these broad precursors of behavior and drivers of behavior, is market participation, which is something we've talked about a number of times in this podcast, that um, when you have competitive economic games like the ultimatum game, for example, uh, which involves, let's say, um, $10 are up for offer, I'm going to propose some split of the $10. Let's say I offer you five of the $10 and you, you say, well, that sounds fair to me. I agree. And we split our $10. Now you could reject in the ultimatum game that offer. If I was to offer you say $3 and you know that I'm keeping seven, you can say, well, no, that's too bad a split. Uh, I don't accept that offer. And then it kills my percentage of that winnings as well. So um, in the ultimatum game, you have to negotiate. You have to basically um, make a fair offer uh, or at least a, an offer you think is going to be perceived as fair for the other person to accept it. And if they don't accept it, you don't get any of the money. That's an interesting Robert, dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating, these sort of economic... Um, cooperation or competition games are nice little microcosms of, of human behavior. And it turns out one of the uh, indicators for fair offers, you know, someone who offers, say, an even split or a close to even split versus someone that tries to gouge the other person is the market integration of that individual. So um, in economies where there's a lot of trading, uh, and it could be trading in a in a financial market. It could actually be trading in like a uh, some sort of a mar a street market uh, as well. The more trades you're involved with, the more you have to negotiate, the more you're likely to give fair offers. And I think that's just a really fascinating sort of uh, phenomenon. And I wish that's something that was taught in schools. You know, having little toy economies with trades. And getting people to realize that um, it's a system that you're participating in and you, you're crushing your opponent is not the goal, right? It's, it's, it's creating context in which you both win. And then on another trade later, that person has a reputation that you can trust and they can trust you. Again, it goes back to trust being the, uh, the key driver of so many economic exchanges. And um, people are going to punish one another from time to time, as they should. If unfair offers are being made, 
the deal doesn't go through. And if a history of fair offers are made, it's almost a sure thing. And I think that's just so critical for um, all the talk of redistributing wealth and would communism be a utopia? <laughs> and I think the reason it isn't a utopia and communism leads to such struggles is going back to the prior point about people need autonomy. They need to understand the rules of the game and you know, whether there's a hierarchy or not, the more you have successfully made deals and negotiated with others, the more you're likely to be able to change your own circumstances, grow your wealth, and feel you have a sense of the rules of the game. So it's interesting that you bring this up. It reminds me of a story that my father told me. Uh, he worked for a real estate developer uh, who was very shrewd. He'd done very well, but he was uh, a very zero-sum type uh, business person. Uh, typically, he would do very few deals, few real estate deals, and usually people would come to him as a last alternative uh, because if you knew, if you were doing business with him, uh, it was going to be really disproportionately beneficial to him relative to you. Uh, so he made a lot on each individual deal, but very few deals were done. There's a story of a broker who came and was kept bringing different real estate deals to him, uh, and he consistently would turn them down. One day the broker came, and uh, this, this person was very acquisitive uh, and very conscious of money. He would literally, uh, the business person, uh, the, the developer, if he was uh, walking through a hallway and had a payphone, then he'd check the you know change return uh, always for any sort of change that was left there and wasn't uh, wasn't taken by the last person that used it. And he had million you know millions and millions of dollars. He's very wealthy. Anyway, this broker uh, approached him. Eventually, uh, he hadn't done any deals. He'd been pre- bringing deals to uh, the developer several different times. And uh, he said, uh, look, uh, I've got a quarter. Uh, will you trade me a nickel for this quarter? And uh, the developer you know, said, well, sure. And so they swapped. And then the developer looked at him and because it was a strange thing that he would do that. So why would you do that? And he said, well, I just want to be able to say that I've done a deal with you. And uh, there's another developer that's quite famous here, uh, Trammell Crow, and uh, enormous wealth and that actually dwarfed the wealth of uh, the developer that my father worked for, uh, who uh, made many, many people very, very wealthy. And he t- had a reputation for doing well with others and treating them well in deals uh, where everybody benefited, and he did many, 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 many deals. So instead of taking the vast majority of you know what was the zero-sum portion of any sort of arrangement, he took less, but he benefited and the other party benefited, and so there was more trading over time. Right. There has to be some level of, of cooperation. And uh, in, in Behave, Sapolsky does go into some of those... Um, sort of algorithms that uh, relate to this. So you can't cooperate all the time or else you're a pushover, but you can't compete all the time either. And so this leads to um, some some research from, uh, I believe back in the early 1980s, 
Robert Axelrod is the name that comes to mind for this uh, line of work on prisoner's dilemma or ultimatum game type uh, economic exchanges. It's game theory. Yeah, game theory. And uh, the tit-for-tat strategy is is known to be uh, sort of the optimal. And that is basically cooperate with your partner until they defect and they compete with you. Then you compete back. And then if they switch back to cooperating, you switch back to cooperating. So that is um, that makes sense. It needs to be a balance between um, you know cooperating, but then being willing to punish someone who tries to gouge you, and they know the the rules of the game that you you have some some toughness to you. It is kind of give and take, and you see that sort of in equilibriums in uh, in nature. That um, you know it's if you if you're always out to gouge the other individual, they're, they're simply not going to participate. It's a short-term win strategy. And I think that that's an important point for market behavior. People have this fictional notion that you have to be incredibly tough and the, the most ruthless person is the, is the most admirable and the richest and the most successful. And it, it's just not really true. People who've actually done business, I mean, I think realize implicitly that reputation matters and uh, negotiation is really critical. Yeah, I used to, uh, I played this game called Magic the Gathering, and there was a trading element to it. It was a collectible card game. There were there was one guy that was in our group, and he would trade with people and try to take advantage of them. He would always try to really rook somebody, and uh, then as soon as he did that, that person, once they realized what had happened, they would never trade with well, I had a different philosophy, which was I would always do a good deal, right? Now, for me, I felt like the deal was better uh, than uh, because it was something that I wanted or something that I saw as being valuable. But I always wanted to make sure the other person didn't walk away unhappy. And consequently, I was able to do a lot of different deals. And ultimately, I think that, you know, my, my trading success was much better than the person who would, you know, basically take advantage of you. And if you think about this uh, from a game theory perspective, if you anticipate that you want to go back to someone and trade with them again, or you want to interact or have some sort of commerce with them again, then they need to have the perception that you've treated them fairly. You always have the option of not doing a deal if you feel like they're being a Right. And neurobiologically, within our brains, when someone is unfair, that stokes up involuntarily negative emotion, right? And, and everyone feels it. Someone being unfair or dishonest is naturally <laughs> aversive to us. And it, it, it is very potent at the level of seconds before behavior. So um, nothing stokes up the emotion like being cheated. And uh, Sapolsky also talks about evolutionary theory of how important it is to trust others, but also be wary of others because you win if you trust others and they reciprocate, right? If you, if I give you food when I have a surplus and you're hungry, you will probably return the favor when I'm hungry and you have a surplus. But if you don't return the favor, I should never do a deal with you again. And, and our emotional systems and behavioral research supports that idea. So um, the rules of the game are embedded, you know, pretty deeply within our biology, which uh, is pointed out by Sapolsky. Uh, another fascinating piece of the book, which I wanted to bring up, was the uh, perilous game of honor and revenge. And uh, this is talked about in relation to pastoralist cultures that are uh, basically herders. 
Um, and what you tend to see there is a culture of honor where um, if someone's honor is insulted, a fight will ensue, a physical fight, um, death may occur, and then revenge killing will probably occur as well. And this becomes a very vicious circle that can occur. Um, and it turns out when you have these zero-sum situations, like um, if someone is going to steal your herd, they're not only stealing from you today, they're stealing your entire livelihood. They're taking your entire business and you must reciprocate uh, violently. And so the examples um, brought up by Sapolsky are the Maasai warriors of Africa who are famously incredibly uh, warlike and were basically wreaked havoc. Um, you know, and this is in prior uh, prior century when this would have would have happened, but the Maasai warriors are, they live off of their cattle and uh, they are an honor-based culture, and uh, you did not want to mess with the Maasai, and they were they were a uh, menace when they would with, they would come by uh, and and raid your town, and that sort of cycle of uh, of honor and revenge leads to some of the highest stress levels and just terrible outcomes, which I think is is a very true lesson apply it around a whole variety of cultures. You know, reciprocity works both ways. You're always looking over your shoulder for the, you know, retribution that is coming to you. Uh, and you're always seeking retribution for the reciprocity that was provided by someone else uh, in connection with a violent act that you were associated with. Amending fences isn't easy when there's a history of violence. You get a Hatfield and McCoy's kind of situation where uh, there's just this heartfelt grudge that can last generations, and uh, burying the hatchet is very difficult. This has been a discussion of the uh, the book Behave by Robert Sapolsky. A few more really critical lessons, I think, that uh, apply to you know the Mental Models podcast. We talk about the frontal lobes quite a bit, and that uh, you, we have this large prefrontal cortex that can be involved in um, sort of doing the right thing and we can overturn the negative emotion and, and sort of turn the other cheek and play the long game. But one of the interesting pearls of wisdom that he leaves the reader with is how much better it is to do the right thing automatically. So when our <laughs> default is to do sort of a fair deal or cooperate, our life just goes so much better and we don't get caught in that tit for tat once we've wronged someone, there, we expect retribution. Life's so much more stressful if you have to watch your back because you're setting out bad karma into the world. So um, I really like that advice. That uh, you know, it's great we have a prefrontal cortex that allows us to do the right thing, but try to build it into your life as a habit, so you don't have to think about it all the time. You'll be happier and you'll be more successful. And some of his parting wisdom uh, from Robert Sapolsky: Nothing seems to cause anything when you get into all these sort of interactions of decision-making. Instead, everything just modulates something else. And that's true of genes modulate, uh, their expressions modulated and our behavior. Um, the environment can modulate our genes. Uh, biology um, modulates our brain response and that modulates our behavior. So um, nothing comes for free uh, in, our, in our behavior. It is a complicated, uh, multi-piece interaction. And I, I think that's correct. I, I really, I would agree with that. Um, I think if, if Behave offered simple answers, it would not be genuine to the human experience. So I haven't had the opportunity to read Behave yet, but I'm uh, certainly looking forward to it after uh, Dan has described it here. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. And if uh, anything strikes a chord, uh, peel, uh, please feel free to uh, 
comment uh, on the, uh, the Metal Models uh, podcast site and let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you again soon. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a job. Please subscribe and like Mental Models podcast. The five-starred book, Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision-Making, is available through Amazon. This book will help you overcome the biases that are keeping you from investing success. The Mental Models podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.